Hello, this is Scott Mortis, and I am launching the first episode of my new Monster X radio program called The Haunted Sea. And this program is specifically about aquatic monsters as opposed to Bigfoot and some of the other terrestrial creatures to which cryptozoology is concerned with. Um, A lot of people know who I am in this field, so I'm not going to go into some long explanation about who I am. I can do that at a later date. Uh, We're starting to show off with a bang with uh, author Max Hawthorne of the Kronos Rising series of paleo fiction books. Uh, Max, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So we want to talk about the new book in the series, uh, Kraken Volume 1. But before we do that, let's kind of set up the background to the first book if you want to kind of explain the synopsis of the first book so we can have a reference to the story of the second book. Okay, sure. Keeping in mind we're talking about a 200,000-word volume, so uh, a synopsis is going to be a little difficult to do quickly. But uh, well, basically, you, don't, yeah, you, don't wanna, you don't want to spoil it for people. Just kind of give a basic outline that will get people okay. interested. I'm sure most people have already read it anyway, but all right, go ahead. Well, Cronus Rising is book one in the series, and it sets the stage for the entire series and the world that will evolve from that point. Uh, so the in terms of the, the primeval protagonist, let's say the monster from Cronus Rising, is based on the idea that there is a Cretaceous-era caldera off the coast of Cuba, which is basically, a caldera is, as many people know, an extinct volcano that at some point, eons past, had the entire top blown off in a explosion. And what is left is a bowl-shaped depression. So this caldera, during the Yucatan impact 65 million years ago, when the asteroid struck the Earth, was basically inundated by a thousand-meter tidal wave, a tsunami, that swamped the caldera as it traveled inland. The caldera was then became basically like a giant fish tank. And a lot of animals, marine life, fish, squid, even some marine reptiles, were deposited in that caldera. And those that survived that cataclysm basically found themselves trapped in an enormous fish tank which worked out nicely because if you have geothermal heating from a dormant or extinct volcano, even during an ice age, for example, you can keep the contents of your aquarium from freezing to death. So those captive animals stayed in that environment, breeding, multiplying, living, dying for 65 plus million years until in modern times an earthquake caused that caldera to split apart, releasing some of its contents into the sea. One of the creatures that was in the caldera was the sole surviving member of a species of enormous pliosaur called Cronosaurus imperator. And this creature escaped out into the Atlantic and, of course, began to migrate up along the coast and eventually settled off the coast of Florida and, of course, caused a lot of problems, as anyone who read the book knows. So that's basically the animal side of the story. We're talking about the east coast of Florida, not the Gulf. Right. 
Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what a pliosaur is, this was a short-necked type of plesiosaur. Most people, when they think of plesiosaurs, think of long-necked, walk-necked monster-type animals. But no, we're talking about the short-necked variety with large heads, which were probably... It's basically like a giant... Like a giant crocodile is what I tell people, except yeah, it has a well, short tail and flippers instead yeah. of feet. Yep. A lot of people kind of compare it to the plesiosaur version of a killer whale of an orca, which is pretty apt considering. A killer penguin from hell with four <laughs> wings. Yeah. So, Kronos Rising was written in its copyright 2005, but was not published until 2014. Do you want to explain how the long lapse between the time the novel was finished and the time it was published may have affected how long it took you to write the sequel and how that long period of time may have affected your choices for where the story was going to go next? Um, well, initially, uh, the the story as a uh, an outline was done in 2004. Then the first draft of the novel was done and copyrighted in 2005. Uh, I found myself in a situation where I kind of put my writing on hold for a bit and, you know, raising a family and so forth. And um, it wasn't until many years later, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, when I started writing full-time, and my first book, which is even before Cronus Rising, came out, then Cronus. Um, the actual rough for Kraken was at, was done probably nine years ago or something, but it ended up sitting in a drawer for the longest time because of the aforementioned situations. Um, what ended up happening, however, was... And it, it turned out to be a, a positive thing, is that over the ensuing years, I would periodically come up with additional ideas, scenes, characters, dialogue, things of that nature. And it ended up going from just a follow-up story into the creation of an entire new world that had been mm-hmm. impacted on by the creature and its descendants from book one. And that, that a lot of stuff, like some stuff you would see in the new book 10 years ago or 11 years ago or something like that might not have been so prevalent made sense. For example, there's a a TV show in Kraken uh, called Pliosaur Wars. This is like a reality show and Uh reality shows weren't that big 10 years ago or something. But in this reality show, because there's so many of these monsters swimming around and eating people and causing problems that they actually have a carrier that has fighter pilots that go out and, basically try and kill these animals. And so this show, like Pliosaur Wars, is centered around their activities. You wouldn't have had that idea 10 or 11 years ago, probably, but in the ensuing time periods, I was able to concoct that and so much other stuff. So you've worked in actual pop culture shifts that have happened over the last 10 years have profoundly affected the narrative of the new book. Well, the storyline itself, where it was going to go, what was going to happen, wasn't affected, but it's some of the little subtle nuances 
that you know you come up with these ideas with along the line, like uh, like the cereal, Chronosaurus Crunchies, you know, with a K. Yeah. You've got a cereal that's become popular for little kids, which is little people with chewy red centers, and they make like a squeaky noise when you bite into them. You know, they scream when you crunch them. So, you know, this is something that I might have come up with eight years ago, nine years ago, instead of 10 or 11 years ago. You know, you get these different types yeah. of ideas that add to the overall story and breathe yeah. more life into it. Of course, at the same time, though, the book became so big that it could not be just a one-volume piece because it would have been 1,200 pages long. So now yeah. Kraken has been split into volumes one and two. Yeah. Um, what was I thinking? Um, all right. Most – the general assumption is that most people writing a series like this would have developed, you know, their central characters in the first novel, and that mm-hmm. novel number two would basically be – more exploration of the same central characters in the same place confronting a, a similar narrative as to what happened in the the first book. And, and I, an example I can think of that is the various sequels to Jaws, you know, where you got the Brody family fighting a new shark and all this business. Mm-hmm. The Meg series where he's, set up, you know, his central characters and and over the course of the four or five books you're dealing with the same people, the same central characters. You chose not to do that. You chose to do something ambitious and and to go off on a different tangent, so to speak. Yes, exactly, which is which is wonderful, you know. I mean, well, I, I think mean, you learn so from other people's to do like Alton has done, but no, you chose mm-hmm. not to do that, which is great. You know, you're taking it somewhere I th- else. I, I well, thank you, um, Scott. But I, I think I, I first off, anybody would learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, I'm not familiar with uh, Alton's books per se. Um, I've seen the Jaws movies, obviously, and we know no. The first one was an immortal classic, and everything else was kind of downhill, more or less, from there. So in my situation, I had a a dual reason for changing the structure of everything. And the first is that I wanted an entire world where these animals were this huge problem. Because, I mean, let's be realistic. As as the human race has done, we have decimated the oceans. We have wiped out so many whales and shark species that if, God forbid, a situation was to occur where some sort of apex predator like my pliosaur was to escape and start to breed into the seas, there really isn't much out there that would slow down their reproductive rate. And I was able to crunch those numbers. There's nothing to keep them in check. And they would multiply and multiply and multiply, killing and eating and growing and multiplying, et cetera, until they became this enormous problem. And I actually wanted to figure out the time period of how many of these animals there would be over X number of years, decades, et cetera. And that helped Mm -hmm. me set the the timetable for the actual prevalence of the animal. But at the same time, a lot of times when you're rehashing stuff with the same character, and don't get me wrong, readers really can grow attached and love characters, but sometimes you can't keep going back to the well over and over again. You need fresh blood, per se. And that doesn't mean that there's, 
Yeah, there's no reference to Amara Takagi, or I should say Amara Braddock, no, since Jake got married. Right, but yeah. and there's more to come. But yeah. you know, now we're talking about the next generation. You know, their fraternal exactly. twin sons and all the characters and, that interact with them and this whole new world. Yeah. Well, one, one reason I, I think I mentioned to you that the book reminds me somewhat of Starship Troopers is the fact that you've set up a whole ecological shift. You've changed the whole world and the socio-political reaction to that event. Is and it was great. In <laughs> yeah. It was a pleasure to, to paint with broad strokes. Yeah, how it's affected the whole world and, the, and your characters that live in that world. You know, which is well. You have to you have, you have to think about the see. People think well, these animals are they're in the ocean. So you know, there was a lot of them. Big deal. What what you know, when you affect the ecology of the seas, you affect the planet. The planet draws yeah. its life force and everything else from the oceans. I mean, that's just the way it is. For I mean, a lot of people have theorized, for example, that so many sperm whales being wiped out may have contributed towards global warming because of the fact that the manure, let's say, that these whales produced tended to actually offset that. But now without all these whales around doing their thing, that is contributing to it. So when you have a, a species of animal the size of a large whale that is a fast-swimming carnivore that is relatively crafty, let's say, almost orca smart, you know, able to avoid boats and ships, et cetera, hard to kill, but at the same time is not afraid of boats, will attack a boat if it wants to, to sink it and eat the people that are on it, you've got a serious problem on your hands. So you yeah, can't what? basically go out onto the ocean unless you're in a destroyer or something. And yeah, then there's like, the fishing exactly. aspect of it. That's the commercial fishing. It's going to destroy the whole commercial fishing industry. Exactly. Your fishing industry takes the first huge hit. Trawlers cannot do their job. Even, you know, any commercial fishing, unless it's in a very large ship, is a big problem. So now you're causing issues with famine, fish stocks, you're affecting the stock yep. market. All these things, can, you know, it just trickles down and it will have a diametric yep. effect on the entire planet. You know, it follows famine, disease, war, poverty, and it's just one thing hand yep. in hand in hand. The butterfly. All because, yeah, right, all because you had 80 hatchlings from this initial clutch go out, and most of them survived to adulthood, and then they created more of their kind and more of their kind, and they just kept going and going and going. And not just them, though. There's so many other, other animals that were in this caldera that were actually food sources for the pliosaurs. You know, you've got the, mm -hmm. the prehistoric bulldog fish, which could be the size of a great white shark. I guarantee yeah, you, if we had bulldog fish swimming around in our modern seas, surfing would not be very popular. Well, they're basically, they've got a head like a Goliath tiger fish, which is a nasty-looking creature that lives right. in but a 20-foot uh, fish is capable yeah. of gulping down a grown man with no problem well, and absolutely. these are fast moving predators they would be like bluefish speed which are very fast and agile they would probably travel in schools as was yeah. exemplified in the book and you know you you end up in the water with them uh, it's just i mean like like down in um the boca grande area for example they have a big tarpon run down there and the tarpon yep which are average the size of a person, are pursued by predators, namely bull sharks and hammerheads. And these are very big, dangerous predators. If you yeah. fall into the water 
where these tarpon are traveling, especially if people are fishing for them and there's wounded or bleeding tarpon, etc., the odds are if you don't get out of that water very quickly, you're going to get attacked. And so if you think about a bulldog fish being much bigger and much yeah. more prevalent, let's say, it would be suicide. So any wading yeah. into the water, any swimming into the water, you know, you wouldn't even have to worry about the pliosaurs, which would be further out because of their size. But these yeah. other animals would just be everywhere, and nobody Absolutely. would be safe. Hence not the bulldog mention, fish roundup. Not to mention the namesake of your new book, which I'll let you expound on that. Oh, you mean the Kraken? Yes. The uh, well, that was the uh, one of the other things that I I saw coming, uh, and it's it's in the um, even in the preview, so it's not like a, I'm giving away a spoiler here. But uh, my personal belief is, and there have been many sightings over the ages of enormous cephalopods, whether they're squid or octopi. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that there is a very large species of deep dwelling cephalopod, whether it is an octopus or a squid or both, that preys on whales, namely sperm whales. Sperm whales have a habit of going down thousands of feet down in search of squid to eat. And I believe that sometimes when a whale goes down there, it doesn't come back because there are predators. Everything has something to eat something that wait down there, and that is their main source of food. So now what happens in Kraken, Volume 1, is that there are so many pliosaurs now, and the pliosaurs feed on whales, including sperm whales. So they Mm -hmm. have further decimated an already damaged population that the human race took down. And now there are so few whales left, and the survivors are starting to migrate to colder waters to avoid the pliosaurs, that these giant cephalopods that live in the abyss are starving to death. They have no food. And so what do they do? An octopus is a highly intelligent animal. That's a scientific mm-hmm. fact. It's their yep. brains are actually proportionally as large as that of many mammals. And that's only one-third of, is in their, quote, head. Two-thirds of their brains, their neurons, are actually in their arms in addition. So they're highly intelligent. An octopus is not just going to sit around and allow itself to starve. So what do they do? They start seeking out alternative sources of food. And if that means coming up from the depths into shallower regions where they might not be as comfortable, they're still going to do it in order to eat. So in this book, you have one or more of these monsters coming up from the depths looking for sources of food, which, of course, puts them into conflict with the human race and who knows what could happen down the road. Yeah, and you've tied this in with the Triassic Kraken that has been talked about in the paleontological literature recently that may have existed in Nevada and fed on the giant Shastasaurian ichthyosaurs, which got about, Mm -hmm. what, 70, 80 feet long? Yeah, the uh, it's it's actually a, an incredible discovery, the the Triassic Kraken. It uh, it appears that, and the evidence is looking more and more like it is exactly the case, that back in the Triassic, and let's be realistic, who's to say that these things ever went extinct, but that there was an enormous type of cephalopod, and we're not sure obviously, um, what exact species, but 
Mark McManaman, who is the expert on this, I'll be speaking with at length and getting more info from it. But mm-hmm. you're talking about a cephalopod that was easily 100 feet long. So a 100-foot yeah. octopus is an enormous, we're talking a blue whale-sized animal. And if yeah. you're a predator that feeds on Shonosaurus, Shastasaurus, these are, like you said, they're sperm whale-sized ichthyosaurs. Now, they may not have had powerful jaws and sharp teeth, which doesn't make them the best offensive fighters against other large predators, but yeah. they were basically like the sperm whales of their day. They would be swimming well, around yeah, feeding they, on cephalopods. The Shastasaurs didn't have teeth, and it's assumed that they were suction feeders that fed on soft-bodied prey like cephalopods. Mm-hmm. So these animals, though, the, as big as... To begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you've got to think about it, though. If you have an animal that size, you know, sometimes there's something that's going to eat it. And yep. so the presence of this you know, Triassic Kraken is, appears to be more and more looking like it was reality and all the more emphasizes, you know, or I should say bolsters my, you know, the, the design, let's say, of the creature in my story. You know, you, yeah. you, I, I looked at the discovery ahead, of a beak is a game changer. You know, mm-hmm. if he's right well, about this being a giant beak, then that is a type specimen. Oh, I think Mark was right even before the, this beak or section of beak was found. I mean, I looked at some of the research, and, you know, people were arguing that first, uh, I believe the, the explanation was that these animals were all buried by a landslide, like all these fossil, you know, Shonosauruses. And that wasn't true because they were deposited at different times. Then they said that the, these vertebrae are arranged, which exactly the same as the suction cups you would see on the arms of an enormous octopus as if something was yeah. picking them up, one in each suction cup, you know, and playing with them, like, you know, playing a game. And octopuses are well known for doing things like this. So yeah, when you look at these vertebrae... to perform tricks. They're that yes, smart. Yes, if you've read Kraken, it's, you have one in there that does exactly that. Einstein. But these, yeah. Yeah, the, the, but the vertebrae in this, like, you know, one of the, the next argument to try and, you know, a, attack the theory of the Triassic Kraken was, oh, well, this is just where an ichthyosaurus, a shonosaurus's carcass lay, and it rotted and collapsed, you know, passively collapsed into the seafloor, and that's why the bones are like that. But that's not true, because the bones are not in order. See, if you had mm-hmm. a, a vertebrae, a spinal column that collapsed, they would be, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But they're not. They're mixed up, which means that something put them in that order specifically. And it wasn't randomly done. Now, what would do that? And the explanation, in my humble opinion, seems you know, pretty obvious. As for Einstein, the little octopus in um, my new novel, uh, who is just a, quote, common octopus who's highly intelligent, uh, yes, it was really fun to explore and utilize his character and give him the octopus version of a Rubik's Cube to solve and everything. And he, yeah. you will be seeing a bit more of him briefly in Kraken Volume 2 also. So we haven't yeah. seen the last of that little man. One thing I think we should explain to people is that you are not implying that this animal is the classic octopus gigantus that supposedly the carcass came ashore at St. Augustine, Florida in 1897. That has since been debunked as being um, skin of a sperm whale. Mm-hmm. Well, you're yeah, I'm familiar with the with the suggest that mm-hmm. there is a giant octopus out there, like the reports of the Alaska 
and Dennis DeMontfort's uh, Poop Colossal and mm-hmm. stuff of that nature. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this. Right, the San Augustine Globster. Yeah. I mean, that one went through all these different stages. First, it was an octopus. Then it was a whale. Then it was definitely, you know, they looked at the tissue an octopus. Now it isn't again. It goes, you know, the story seems to yeah. keep changing, et cetera. But for me, yeah. I'm just using the name because let's be realistic. I mean, if you yeah, have a giant I octopus. To, to understand yeah. that so they're not trying to accuse you of, of saying that the San Augustine monster was not a Globster. Mm-hmm. Scott, there have been so many sightings, you know, yeah. people claiming these enormous octopi out there that, the, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, people can say what they want. At the end the of the best. day, it's a cool name. I like the name. And, you know, yeah, it's a, it was assigned to what was thought to be a species. I'm utilizing it to make that species now in the pages of my novel reality. That's all there is to yeah. it. Well, there's, you know, probably the best eyewitness report that I can think of is this guy uh, in the Bahamas, you know, Andros Islands, named Sean Ingham, sometime around 1983, something mm-hmm. grabbed his crab pots. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. I could dig it up, but... Uh, oh, I think this is the one where they said it was something enormous and they could feel it walking along the bottom. I is that the one you're so. referencing? Yeah, and they said it it had at least 600 pounds of pressure that it was pulling with or something, and they could feel it moving, like walking along the bottom, literally like walking rhythmically. And and that's what octopi do. I know that part of this was an influence on Peter Benchley when he was writing Beast. Mm -hmm. A classic novel, by the way. Yeah, oh, absolutely, one of the best. Um, And, you know... In another conversation, <clears throat> we were talking about how I, I told you about Arthur C. Clarke's novel, The Deep Range, mm-hmm. and you had never heard of it. And <clears throat> when I was reading Kraken for the first time, it struck me how it reminded me. You know, Of course, you weren't trying to copy it or anything, but it reminded me <laughs> of Clarke's novel, The Deep Range, which – the, the plot of Clark's novel is mm-hmm. that a hundred years, this book was written in 1957, is that in a hundred years in the future, mm-hmm. that the world's population would use whales as a, as a commercial food source. So they've got these guys out in submarines, kind of like cowboys. They're herding the whales and protecting them from sea monsters. Mm-hmm. And in the novel, there's a giant squid, there's a, a megalodon shark and a sea serpent. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a really cool book, way ahead of its time. And um, the fact that you've got these guys out in the submarines, you know, fighting the monsters, mm-hmm. naturally reminded me of that. And I was just you know, absolutely flabbergasted to find out that you had never heard of this book. Well, I think that back in 1957, uh, whaling was still going on. And I would imagine that when, yeah, when Arthur C. Clarke wrote this novel, he had no idea of how decimated the whales would be by relentlessly being slaughtered. I mean, blue whales, their population was reduced by 90% or something, yeah. uh, and still is down. 
uh, you know, from 400,000 animals, I think there's like around 10,000 now or something like that. And this is yeah. decades later. But, you know, I think that he probably thought that whales were an, an inexhaustible supply that could be farmed like cattle. And obviously yeah. we know that's not the, the case. Um, well, but there's really a difference. Cool is that mm-hmm. at the end of the novel, there are so mm-hmm. many people protesting against the slaughter of the whales that they finally stop it. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of prophetic in a way. That well, yeah, that that's. I mean, I don't know the story, obviously, but I mean, in yeah. Kraken, the you know, the, there's a big difference. You see, there's the submarines that are in my novel with the Coastal Defense Force are what's called anti-biologic subs. They're designed to kill life forms, in particular, yeah. kill or capture these giant chronosaurus imperators. And that is their area of specialty. That's what they've been specially designed for. Heavily armored, fast, maneuverable, highly weaponized, and with a minimal crew. There's no, you know, being a shepherd for flock or anything like that. These are basically sentries. Naturally, the idea of these people out there dealing with these animals in submarines naturally reminded me of Clark's Mm -hmm. novel and the general idea. And, and and also the general idea about how the the worldwide scope of your novel reminds me of mm-hmm. the Clark thing, too. And then it also comes back to the Starship Troopers uh, thing, because when Heinlein was writing Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. he imagined an entire whole world. And his world expanded, you know, I mean, it was uh, um, into the universe and the other planets, too, you know. So uh, the scope of Kraken reminds me of Starship Troopers. I don't have to see Clark. And I could think of worse company to be compared to. Absolutely. It's, it's very flattering. And it was quite an undertaking, I guess you'd say, to try and create an entire world like this. I mean, when you do any novel, any work of fiction, you're basically creating a, quote, a world. But usually yeah. it's the world for your characters, meaning, you know, their lives, Absolutely. their jobs, you know, the people they interact with. That's that's the quote world. When you're doing something on the scale of of you know, my novels now, you're creating not just the world of the characters, but the world period. And yeah, I mean the changes even in technology that take place thirty years in the future. Yep, absolutely. It's all it's all contingent. <laughs> You've created a world and the consequences of what comes out of that world as well. What kind of impact this has on future events and future technology and all that. I mean, that's really impressive. Well, thank you. And in the right hand, think about what wonderful films these could be if done right. Mm hmm. Well, I think that's just a matter of time, but let me not, you know. Yeah. Let me not go there right now. Um, so why don't you tell us about the children of Jake and Amara, where they're at okay. and what they're doing and how that contrasts with each other. Okay. I don't want to get into too much with that because, you know, you're giving away a lot of spoilers per se, but uh, basically Jake and Amara had twin sons. They are fraternal twins, not identical. Uh, you have Garm and you have Derek, whose nickname is Dirk. Um, and 
they are kind of night and day to each other. Gorm is a very big, athletic, powerful guy, uh, the Adonis-type DNA quote that has his mother's opal-colored eyes and is quite the ladies' man, uh, his, and also was a heavyweight boxing contender. And his brother is smaller, uh, athletic but slim, and more, quote, plain-looking, and he's the scientific end of things. Uh, they have a their dynamic, the, the relationship between them, has always been a bit of a problem for the for Dirk because he's always been jealous of his brother. Of course, he doesn't realize that his brother often feels the same way about him. And so there's a I don't want to call it enmity, but uh, you know there is some some problems with their relationship. Gorm commands yeah. one of the submarines that hunts and kills dangerous pliosaurs. And his brother runs Tartarus, a secret, top-secret military-type facility that cages some of these creatures and even does experiments on them. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we're looking at. Do you want to talk about <clears throat> the disease that features prominently in the novel? We could touch on that. I don't see why not. Uh, there is one of the, uh, there's a lot of animals, first off, like I mentioned, that escape from the caldera. And some of these animals are edible, like, uh, for example, some of the fish species that whose populations have exploded, which ultimately should help in terms of the uh, replenishing the ocean's fish stocks or replacing some of them over time. Um, but the actual pliosaurs themselves, which have occasionally been consumed by people, are carrying a very lethal pathogen, uh, this specific types of bacterium, that cause what is called Cretaceous cancer in mammals. And it's not an actual cancer, it's a bacterial infection that basically rages out of control and is almost impossible to treat. And causes people to basically like rate like think picture rabies times 10. Um, it yeah. has external effects on people in terms of their skin and, and different physiological things that happens with them without getting into gross details. Um, but it also makes them dangerous and maniacal and obviously they bite other people and with their saliva they will transmit this disease from one to another to another. So there have been issues in areas of the world where Cretaceous cancer is becoming more and more widespread, especially around fishing communities, islands, things of that nature. You know, these people catch a fish even, maybe a fish that was bitten by a pliosaur but managed to escape. They eat the fish and somebody comes down with this. Or they catch a small pliosaur, let's say, or they find a dead one and they cut it up and they eat it. Uh, then you've got a serious problem. So part of what's been going on is that the research facility in Tartarus has been trying to, to come up with a cure for Cretaceous cancer. And there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with that that may have bearing on what goes on with the story in volume two. Now, were you partially inspired to come up with this from the nasty venom of the Komodo dragon? Oh, absolutely. I saw the, uh, I forget which documentary, where they were looking at the, the Komodos, and back then they were, and I, I've heard recently now that they have the actual venom, 
versus just bacteria. But yeah, last what impressed me the most they decided it was venom. Mhm. What uh I mean that aspect of it doesn't really have any bearing for me, but what impressed me the most was the dragon's immune factors in their blood. And I remembered watching how they would show Komodo dragon's blood and then they would expose it to bacteria. And their antibodies are so powerful that whenever they touched an invading bacteria, it just exploded like a balloon popping or something. Yep. I and think so I've these seen animals, yeah, these animals, these huge lizards, are so used to tearing each other apart, fighting, ripping each other open, and you know, the, you know, the slobber, the bacteria, the, the carrion they feed on, all the stuff getting into their wounds, their bloodstream, that they must have the most potent antibodies in the animal kingdom. In my humble opinion, Probably. and that think of about, course. Think about megalania, how nasty it, mm-hmm. it's venom probably would have been. Sure, and of course, anybody who's read Cronus Rising, the first book, knows that the animals in my novel are have accelerated powers of regeneration, and this yeah. wasn't just trying to trick them out and say, "Oh, well, I'm going to give them this and that and this and superpowers and all this stuff." It's the fact that you're dealing with an isolated race of mega predators trapped in an eight-mile-wide fish tank for 65 million years. You know, these yep. animals are going to fight. They are going to kill each other. The bigger ones are going to kill and eat the, the smaller ones. The stronger will kill and eat the weaker. So over time, you're basically breeding a mega reptile. Only the yep. most powerful, strongest, fastest, and fastest recovering of the species would continue on to pass on their genes to the next generation. So it made well, yeah. sense yeah, for these animals to be able to heal faster from wounds because otherwise, I mean, let's be realistic, you're in a caldera with you know, enormous squid and predatory fish and giant reptiles that want to eat one another. If you're not going to bounce back from a bite wound or something like that, you're going to be fish food or pliosaur food or whatever. So the, their regenerative abilities you know, was when you look at the Komodo dragon's blood and bloodstream made sense for me when I was developing this bacteria for them to be carrying because they would, of course, be immune to it, but mammals, let's say, would not be. And that, you know, that was an an interesting take to, to go in terms of, like, let's say, directing how the story is going to go with Cretaceous cancer and everything else. I mean... Think about it. Yeah. You're talking about a prehistoric animal that hasn't had contact with a human being or any other mammal, per se, unless maybe some birds flew in there, you know, into the caldera, of course, but hasn't been exposed to mammals or anything else for 65 million years. So you're basically, it's like an alien world. You know, yep. there's always a fear if something comes from outer space, for example, that it might have some sort of pathogen that could be spread and could even wipe out the human race. So this could be heading in that direction. If it's yeah, not well, dealt with. anybody that knows anything about evolution will tell you that the way you get evolutionary jumps is to take a population and isolate them mm-hmm. to where they they follow their own isolated evolutionary path. So this all makes sense. Yeah, I believe Darwin said that if you separated a species by a natural barrier for only 10,000 years, you would end up with two separate species whether it's finches yep. or lizards or snakes yep. or monkeys or cats or whatever else the case may be. I'm yeah. sure at one point 
tigers and lions were descended from the same initial cat, but once you split them up in continents, they evolved to ad- and adapt to their surroundings. Yep, absolutely. Which, of course, it explains a lot. Like, you know, there have been, uh, there have been people that have questioned the fact that uh, the pliosaurs in Cronus Rising, uh, you know, criticizing the fact that they use echolocation like a whale would. And first off, I mean, anything is possible. We do not know anything about the soft tissue or factors or anything else from animals that have been gone for 65, 70, 80, 90 million years. So there's no one to say definitively whether yeah. or not they would or would have not. Uh, it would seem to me that certain ichthyosaurs appear to have a shape similar to that of a dolphin in terms of their cranial structure yeah. and might have had some sort of melon to generate you know, sound clicks, echolocation clicks. Um, well, there was it a is paleontologist possible. in Australia named Mary Wade that's speculating mm-hmm. that Platypterygius may have had a sonar melon, but her opinion mm-hmm. is kind of the minority opinion, but it is possible. Sure. Um, but, I mean, uh, anything, you, in order to have echolocation, doesn't necessarily require you to have a melon stuck on top of your no. head. You just have to have the physical ability to generate these type of clicks and then to be able to bounce them back, absorb them, and break them down. And humpback whales, for example, have been proven to, to have clicks of their own, but which they only seem to use at night when they're navigating or when they're feeding, which, of course, would yeah. imply that, obviously, they're helpful in terms of navigation. Now, they don't have mm-hmm. a melon or anything like that, but they're generating these clicks from somewhere, whether it's their vocal cords or who knows what. So, you know, pliosaurus yeah. having sonar clicks, to me, especially with a deep-diving predator that would go down like a sperm whale, would make sense. In the caldera, however, you're talking about a body of water that's at least 5,000 feet deep or 8,000 feet deep. These animals have to hunt all layers of that water in order to survive in populations. They need that space. They're not going to be in the upper 500 feet of the water column and not utilize the rest of it. So for them to evolve echolocation would only make sense. Yeah. Well, you've you've got evidence of these neural canals on the snouts of some pliosaurs that seem to indicate some sort of organ system along the lines of the Ampulaea Lorenzini for detecting mm-hmm. electrical signals in the in the water. And there's also this phenomenon called electrolocation where animals are using an electrical pulse the same way you would use a sound pulse with echolocation. Some electric fishes do that. So yeah, there's all sorts of possibilities. Um I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is a work of fiction. This is not a, you know, a a science digest or anything like that. You know, you're not going to read a novel like mine, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, or anything like that, and decide that, you know, this is how everything is. Well, not only that, paleontologists themselves argue like cats and dogs over things like this Mm -hmm. in the scientific literature. So, you know. There's a lot of things that they're not sure about. At the end of the day, it's about enjoying the story and creating a plausible reality for your readers. And that's my job. Well, absolutely I want people to that. enjoy I'll their story. Give you that. Beyond doubt. Well, thank you, sir. One does vow to endeavor to persevere, to borrow a line from the outlaw Josie Wales. Yep. Chief Dan George. 
Um, okay, um, let's talk about some of the nasty marine parasites that make cameo appearances in the book. Like the giant oh, sea worm and the sea lice. Uh, let's see. Well, which one do you want to touch on first? The uh, the the vermitis giant platyhelminth worm, the tapeworm. Ugh. Yeah, that uh, you know it's 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 not often that I write a scene where I'm inwardly cringing a little bit, but you know that was one of them. Uh, in the story, a very large cow pliosaur, which was assigned uh, the name. Oh my God. Which one was it? There's been so many in the book. I think it was Goliath, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but was captured, and when they were doing a procedure, a surgical procedure on this drugged animal, they discovered that it had an enormous parasite inside of it. And the pliosaurs, of course, were known for having these tapeworms, but this one, because the pliosaur had been injured by gunfire at some point, had managed to grow through into the abdominal wall and had reached an enormous size, much bigger than normal, to the point that it was eventually going to kill the host. When they tried to remove this creature through the animal's vent, I'm sure we all know what that is, uh, the, this tapeworm was the size of a very large titano boa. You know, 50, 60 feet long, three feet thick across, et cetera. And you're talking about this enormous, slimy, mucusy, covered mass with a, a face ringed with fangs and these blackened claws that run along its length that help it adhere to the internal lining of the uh, abdomen, the stomach of whatever prey it's, it's infesting. And, of course, it it comes out. It's not very happy about being removed from its home, and it, well, the situation goes downhill from there. Something analogous to the hagfish from hell. Mm. Oh, what actually gave me the idea for the pliosaur tapeworm, it's, and it sounds silly by comparison, but um, it goes back to the fact that, well, everybody knows I'm a, a consummate fisherman, and many years ago, uh, when I was doing first getting into saltwater fishing, uh, we would use what's called sandworms for bait. And it, to me, almost, a sandworm is almost like a scaled-down version of this pliosaur parasite. Uh, sandworms are kind of an olivish, slimy, greenish thing. They're covered with these feelers, and they actually have a mouth parts that extend out with these black pinchers on the end. And the first time I found out that they were carnivorous was I was trying to put one on the hook, and I, I felt something... Uh, painful and I looked down and this thing had gnawed through the skin of my knuckle and was chewing on the meat of my finger <laughs> which of course the captain had not told me that they were capable of biting people <laughs> so it wasn't exactly the most pleasant of experiences but it didn't it did well, make there, a lasting impression on me though there are beyond doubt some nasty large marine worms like the bobbit worm you know mm. I, do you now tell me something is that named after that poor guy from years ago that, you know, his wife... Yeah, I sleeping? think so, because oh, they basically man, look like a penis, so I would think hurt. so. Uh, oh, yeah. God, just the thought. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, what was the other parasite? Was the... Sea um, lice. Oh, yes, yes, the, the, the body lice for the pliosaurs. Yeah, that, that one, and that one was also inspired by a fishing-related incident. Um, see, there's been different people have used, uh, you know, like these these sea arthropods. You know, you've seen like in um, 
what was that kaiju movie? Pacific Rim. They had one of those in there, you know. But I wanted something different for the pliosaurs. So I wanted something that was going to kind of look like a scale, so it wasn't really distinguishable, kind of blended in there while it was sitting there sucking blood, etc. And I wanted it yeah. for that effect for the story where somebody would actually come in contact with this thing. So the first time I ever went fishing for halibut up in Alaska, I you know caught a couple of very large halibut. And when we got back to the dock before they starts, you know, filleting them and everything, they have them hanging up. And the, yeah. the halibut is dark on one side and then white on the other. The side that sits on the bottom is just pure white because it's never seen. So I yeah. went over to this, this five-foot fish is hanging there, and I noticed that there was, like, some sort of, like, sort of a clearish kind of like a, like a little bump on it, about an inch inch and a half, you know. It sort of looked like a yeah. scale almost. You really couldn't see it, though, because it blended in with the belly. Well, I touched it, and it went, and it started moving. And I was like, oh, huh. what the? And the fish was dead, so it wasn't the fish. I was like, what the hell is that? I turned to the captain, and he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, uh, yeah, it's a fish louse. Don't touch that. They're, they're kind of nasty, you know. And I was like, oh, my God. And it was, you know, a bunch of them. And they looked was like it these sort of it was semi-transparent. It blended perfectly oh. with the, the white belly of the fish. And it was wow. a nasty piece of work. You did not want to touch this with your finger or anything. So, of course, yeah. I expounded upon that in Cronus Rising Kraken to the point where, you know, the thing was the size of a hand or something like that. And, you know, I think we were able to use a little humor in there about what would happen if it got on a person, etc. But it all loaned itself to the story where that poor unfortunate soldier took his knife and started trying to cut this thing free, and he actually awakened this sedated pliosaur to very ill effects to everyone in the surrounding area and himself in particular. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. Yep, you've got a lot of animal characters in the novel that have names and personalities. Well, a lot of those names, keep in mind, if we're talking about the ones in the research facility, those names have been assigned to them. They're not, you know, a given name per se, more like a code name or something like that, like Proteus. And you've also got recurring animal characters from the first novel, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Are we talking about Avalanche? Well, I got Tiamat, too. Oh, Tiamat wasn't in the... Oh, I, no way. Well, you're right. You know what? You got a point there. Yeah, see that? You, you got one past me. Okay, so, yes, there are several animal characters, although Tiamat wasn't named, of course, um, that have appeared from the, the first book. And first of all, I will say this. Uh, m- you know, when I read, like, marine terror novels, one of the things that I found growing up was that sometimes I would be disappointed that the the monster quote didn't make much of an appearance you know it was sporadic it was here and there and here and there but it was only like sprinkled in and it wasn't enough for my taste i like to give the readers what they want action adventure characters that they can root for and get behind hate detest loathe want to see get killed whatever it might be but at the same time i want to make sure they have enough of what they really like which is obviously the creatures as long as they're worked into the story, I'm not going to write an entire novel from a, a monster's point of view or something like that. But you, also, uh, you want them to be animals rather than monsters. 
Right. And I've, I've gotten great feedback, you know, over the last couple of years from people who feel that it's almost like I have this preternatural ability to get inside of one of these creatures' heads and to feel their personalities and think the way they would think. And I guess that's a honed skill that I've developed for myself or something. You want to, you know, if you're, if you're a pliosaur, you want to be the pliosaur. If you're a whale, you want to be a whale. If you're a megalodon shark, you want to be the shark. And you want each of these animals to have its own distinctive needs, desires, personalities, why it does the thing it does. That creates more mm-hmm. realism for the reader without becoming boring or tedious or anything like that. Um, but in terms of Tiamat, I mean, the avalanche, the whale, we saw him 30 years later, and, you know, he had some problems in the beginning of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people don't realize, and I, I don't even know if I want to say it, but I guess I'm going to, that Tiamat was in the end of the first Cronus Rising novel. And mm-hmm. this goes to, go, goes to the epilogue in the story. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil it completely for people, but if you have oh, that no. book and you read the epilogue, you know, then you're going to realize, oh, my God, that's her. You know, and yep. 30 years later, there she is in the second book in the series. So another it's an interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. It's, go ahead. I was going to say another interesting thing in the new novel is you have some genetic evolutionary jumps mm-hmm. in your plasoids that some of mm-hmm. them have made an evolutionary leap. If you want to talk a little bit about that without spoiling it for people. Well, I think that, uh, once again, when you're talking about a species that's contained for so long in an isolated environment, I think, uh, to quote Ian Malcolm, you know, nature breaks free, if I'm saying that correctly. Yep. And, uh, you know, you, when you release these animals also, from this environment, their genes are going to build up you know, this desire to explode outward. And so these leaps just come naturally. And yep. so, you know, there's nothing like completely far-fetched in terms of like these mutations, etc. cetera. Um, but they are based on actual physiological factors that some of the pliosaurs or modern reptiles have already or have just become, they've become more advanced at utilizing those resources. And Proteus is... accumulating more evidence every day that mm-hmm. plesiosaurs <clears throat> were at least partially warm-blooded, if not fully warm-blooded like a mammal. Mm-hmm. And that they gave live birth and probably lived in family groups and took care of their young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I touched on all book. these things actually in the new book. Yeah, because when, when the first Cronus Rising novel was written, you know, the, the knowledge was you're going back 12 years in the past already. You know, every year, every month, new information is forthcoming. You work with what you have. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, there's still, contrary to what a, a lot of people seem to think there is still debate among the paleontologists as to whether these animals are amphibious or not. Mm-hmm. So, I personally, I, I tend to think that they probably were, but... Well, I think if you look at the, the structure of the skeleton, it tells you a lot. Uh, the, like the, 
when you look at a, a plesiosaur, whether it's a pliosaur, an elasmosaur, whatever the case may be, the, their gastralia, their belly ribs, are they're heavily reinforced. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that if, then if you look at animals that are completely aquatic and would die if beached, like a lot of whales, they have none of that support. And so, I mean, is that just for protection against other predators, or is there more to it than that? You know, the, I mean, the only large cetacean that successfully beaches itself is the killer whale. And if you look at the killer whale's skeletal structure, its rib cage has some reinforcements like that. Mm-hmm. So if a 20, 25, 30-foot orca is capable of beaching itself and successfully squirming its way back into the ocean, then I would think a similar size or smaller plesiosaur that had a much more reinforced body and four powerful flippers that could help to drag it ashore would be much more capable of doing that. Yeah. Not just a matter of, it's just a matter of you have the anatomy, you know, I mean, the whale is doing it by squirming, you know, well, and yeah. it's not I mean, collapsing or anything like that. So, and the whale doesn't have anywhere near that type of reinforcement. Swam, that their mm-hmm. girdles moved in and out like an accordion. So it's possible even if the flippers couldn't raise the weight up, they might be able to hump their way with just the body, with mm-hmm. the flippers flopping around. For small. Well, you don't have to raise your flippers in order to push. You just have to slide them forward. Yeah. I mean that's you know the, that's just a matter of slide push slide push slide push you know that type of thing and these these flippers on these animals are very large they have very heavy bones you know you're talking yep. powerful muscles you know, and four of them well, uh, I mean the I, I would think of you know the witching hour is at hand we've got about two minutes to say our goodbyes and we're but hopefully be back next week for part two of this. This has been a wonderful well, conversation. Uh, Thank you for appearing, and I've enjoyed it very much. Scott, it's been my pleasure, and as Benny Hill would say, it is an honor and a privilege. Yep. Is there is there any last-minute thing you want to say in conclusion? No, I, I'm very grateful for being here. I'm grateful to all my readers, and if you've enjoyed Cronus Rising Kraken, shoot me a line and let me know. Yep, and we'll pick this up where we left off next week and thanks again for appearing it was my pleasure Scott thank you have a good day bye you too